they became an organization that instead of 80% operations, 20% intelligence, became 80% intelligence, 20% um, operations. So all of that information had to be managed. The planning that some of the artificial intelligence machine learning have allowed us to speed up in real time, where our operators at the edge can actually get the data and pull it into their systems, uh, it's gonna be game changing in the future. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And in this episode, I'm joined by two very special guests. Dr. Richard Schultz is a professor and the director of the International Security Studies Program at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And General Richard Clark is the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command. The discussion we have focuses on the question of how special operations forces are integrating high-tech tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning to optimize their operations. They trace the history of U.S. Special Operations Forces efforts in Iraq to adapt to the counterterrorism fight there. They also explain how these forces made use of data to enable a remarkably rapid operational tempo, and they describe how a program called Project Maven took shape to harness new technological capabilities. Dr. Schultz has researched and written about Special Operations Forces and technology extensively, and General Clark has spent much of his 36-year military career in Special Operations units. Together, their perspectives offer some really valuable insights into a fascinating and important topic. Before we get to the conversation, one quick note. As always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Schultz and General Clark. Dr. Schultz, General Clark, thank you both so much for joining me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Hey, John. Thanks. And and I do want to say I'm I'm honored to be here with with Dick Schultz. Uh, just a great mind and intellect, uh, but most importantly, a really good guy uh, who, who's been great in this effort, and, and I've known him uh, for several years. So, thanks, John. Well, thank you both. Uh, so, you know, we published at MWI, we published an article of yours uh, several weeks ago. And this podcast, this conversation is going to be kind of a follow up to that where we can expand on some of the ideas. It was a fascinating article. If listeners uh, have not seen it yet, uh, you can find it on the MWI site. But it essentially, it focuses on the question of technology and technological innovation and adaptation, uh, specifically within the special operations community. So the first question, uh, Dr. Schultz, maybe maybe this is a good one to direct to you, is if we want to better understand how to harness and harness technology and innovate and use it in, in, in new ways uh, to serve our purposes, why are special operations forces a particularly useful case study to look at? Yeah, I think, um, John, the reason for that is that um, they, are, they are built uh, on the uh, concept of adapt and, uh, and, and improvise and, um, and to uh, tackle um, uh, challenges that they, uh, they may not initially be familiar with. And, uh, and I saw that clearly in um, the research I did on Task Force 714, the Special Operations Task Force in Iraq. Um, they faced a, a problem that was completely new, 
um, they were given a mission that um, that they uh, they could not achieve given the way that they were structured, and and they adapted. And General Clark, you know, from your perspective as the Special Operations Command commander, uh, I wonder if you could answer kind of a similar question. Um, what makes special operations units maybe particularly well equipped um, to work to harness technology uh, in seeking solutions to the problems that they confront? Uh, what, number one, uh, what Dick said was exactly right. We, we just have great people who are innovative and they are problem solvers. I think what makes you know, SOCOM and, and the forces underneath SOCOM unique to this is that we are for deployed and, and faced with problems that need to be solved. And so, you know, it goes to, hey, if I, if I can, if I, if I have that problem and then I can frame it properly, uh, then I can apply the tools that we need to, to, to actually solve them. And technology is part of it, but there are also cultural and there's processes uh, designed to do, you know, that, that we have built around uh, to do that. And, and I think what, what we have found that works uh, extremely well is you actually give that problem to a specific group or element. And it's usually in the area in which they're working. And then you give them the tools, you know, which money, resources, time, uh, and then say, hey, what are the solutions and what additional you know, resources you need to solve it? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you mentioned culture because we have the five soft truths, right? And one of those is that humans are more important than hardware. And granted, we're talking about software in, in, in many cases now and not hardware, but the cultural element is a really important part. And I wonder if you can describe, have there been any sort of cultural challenges to implementing technological solutions uh, to the problems that, that special operations forces confront on the battlefield? The, the way I'd go about it, John, I, our, our guys actually like trying new things. They like testing. You know, they also know and understand the value of failing. And you try to fail rapidly and then overcome, which is an, which is an important aspect of this. Uh, but the, the cultural piece, uh, I don't think, is a challenge as much as because with commander's guidance and intent and, and say, hey, here's what we want to do, Mo the, the vast majority of people are trying to solve problems in, inside SOCOM will get after it. I, I think that the bigger challenge that I think we, we have to consider is there's a lot of different technologies out there. You could talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. You could talk about uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. You, know, you, you could talk about robots and autonomy and what we're doing. But the part that we're trying to, to come to grips with is how do you integrate all those to have a system? And this, you know, I, I defer to, to Dr. Schultz as he did the study on 714. It wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, a certain technology that solved the entire problem that 714 was encount encountering what was the solution was the systems that were then integrated along with the people and the design that actually led to success. So I, I think it'd be good for, for Dr. Schultz to comment on a second on this. 
Yeah, and and for listeners, uh, Task Force Seven One Four, Special Operations Forces Task Force uh, in Iraq. Doctor Schultz, uh, can you expand on that idea of of organizational change associated with uh, uh, technological change? I'm happy to do so. Um, the the you had a, a task force um, with uh, I- individual leaders and members. Um, who uh, who think in in terms of adaptation and and adopting uh, tools that are needed for new problems? Now the the biggest problem that one of the biggest problems the 714 faced after they have reorganized themselves to become an intelligence driven organization was the amount of intelligence they were collecting. Which was enormous. Um, and can you kind of describe what you what you mean by that? Yeah, I can. So, seven one four went from a, an organization that could carry out twenty or so missions a, a month to three hundred a month. On those three hundred missions, one of the big things they did was site exploitation. So they would hit a, a an Al Qaeda cell. They would collect all the cell phones, all the computers, all the hard drives, all the documents, all the paper, and they bring it back. Now, imagine 300 of these a month and the enormous amount of material you're going to be collecting and and all of the data and intelligence that's in that. Then they also had um, quite a bit of uh, intelligence from, from drone platforms because General McChrystal was able to get a, a big share of the, of the, the, uh, the FMV. So mounds of data that had to, um, had to be um, organized in order to drive operations. And see, the way they changed themselves was they became an organization that instead of 80% operations, 20% intelligence, Came 80% intelligence, 20% um, operations. So all of that information had to be managed, and they they understood it and they found the tools to do it, um, which were data integration platforms that allowed um, uh, uh, a- analysts and operators um, to really zero in on that part of the the F3 EAD process, right, um, that involved analysis and, uh, and, and exploitation. So that was really important, and it showed an innovative way of thinking. Um, I got a problem. Um, I know there are, there are tools that are available. I got to go get them, and, uh, and I'm going to employ them to manage this data for targeting. And what kind of data are we talking about? Because you said, as you said, during the you know site exploitation phase uh, of an operation, uh, they're grabbing cell phones, thumb drives, hard drives, yeah. um, you know, pocket litter, all kinds of stuff. Um, so, what kind of data were they trying to manage? Okay, so they, what they want to do is take out take the the data off of each of those devices, and 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 curate and condition it so that it could be in a database. Uh, along with um, the um, the FMV, that that analysts could then use tools 
to um, to look for uh, uh, individuals and activities uh, that uh, that would be uh, of interest to focus on in in building, let's say, um, a a a model of Al Qaeda's uh, in Iraq's network in one part of Baghdad, and and so that that data. Um, which is very valuable. I mean, just think about, uh, you have to think about the fact that, that Al-Qaeda was a networked organization. So all of that information, if you can put it into a usable form, um, allow and give analysts tools to investigate it, that, um, that you can start to look for things that you don't know about. And General Clark, given your experience, I wonder if you can kind of share maybe a practitioner's perspective on and the pretty remarkable transformation that that uh, that Dr. Schultz just described. Yeah, hey John, I, I was I was fortunate enough to be part of that and on the ground uh, during what uh, much of what uh, Dick Schultz was just describing. And bottom line, we were faster than the enemy to be able to quickly decide and act. Uh, it goes back to Dick's point in F3EA or find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, where sometimes we are, our people on one target would question uh, the, the, the enemy on that target when we captured them, and we would immediately execute another target right away. So. You go out. You go out to execute to go capture or kill you know, part of the Al Qaeda network, and you went for one for one mission. And that night, you may do four or five. You know, from the same force through the tactical questioning through some of the, you know, as Dick just described, some of the pocket litter, you know, some of the analysis of some of the devices that we were able to move quickly from one mission right to another. Uh, and because of that, we're just able to rip the guts out of Al Qaeda uh, in in a faster mode because they weren't all top down driven. A lot of these were bottom up uh, because we de- we bottom up fed, bottom up developed targets uh, that uh, you know operators on the ground were able to execute, and they didn't need commanders' permission to go out every single time. They were able to work with commander's intent uh, and execute quickly. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up this this idea of commander's intent because we tend to think of soft um, units as, as, as relatively flat organizations, uh, as, as you know, units that have done what we in the Army call mission command uh, pretty well, uh, enabling decentralized uh, operations. Um, the you know, I'm envisioning sort of operations, what you just described, operations generating data that then feeds back into the analysis uh, phase of the F3 EAD cycle, uh, and then using that uh, information, the intelligence is generated from that to enable further operations. But it strikes me that maybe that's a bit of a choke point. Um, and, and maybe Dr. Schultz, you could speak to this. Were there any sort of organizational changes that were required specifically to keep that from becoming a bottleneck? Um, yeah, I can. Uh, I could say that yes, um, and and you know the the restructuring. There there are sort of two key um, concepts. One we've been talking about F three EAD. The other was 
a joint interagency task force, which really was a joint interagency intelligence task force. And the, the bringing of, um, of all of the, the different, um, what uh, General or Admiral McRaven always called the three-letter a- agencies, bringing them uh, to, uh, to Balad, but then also connecting that uh, Balad back with those home agencies. So it, it allowed for this kind of data exploitation. But it, in order to have that, you had to have empowerment of, uh, of those uh, junior analysts who, were, who could easily be intimidated finding themselves in, in a headquarters with, you know, those high-speed teams that, uh, that are part of that, uh, that component of SOF. So the, the real, I think one of the really important aspects of this was to, from, from the leadership, to create empowerment um, down to the local level where, or down to the bottom of the organization, where those individuals um, were not intimidated to um, uh, to uh, jump in uh, to uh, a particular situation that's live. You know, you just, as General Clark said, you just had a raid. You collected this stuff. You're draining some of those devices right at the spot of the raid. It's fed back into a larger system. You're looking for connections. Some analyst starts to see this, and he says, you know, here's what we got to do. So I want to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about data, and I want to hone in on one particular form of data, and that's full motion video, uh, specifically um, gathered by uh, UAVs. You know, I think listeners will have a pretty intuitive sense uh, that we can, the U.S. military can can put a lot more UAVs up in the sky now than we could have, say, 15, 16, 17 years ago. But that's generated a ton more of this FMV. Dr. Schultz, I wonder if you can kind of give us a sense of how much more uh, we're talking about. Is it is it orders of magnitude more FMV data than we had previously been able to generate? Yeah, the answer is yes. Now, this goes back to um, Secretary Gates and uh, and the ISR task force that he established in 2008. So it it led to really a a big growth uh, in in UAVs and and, an increasing sophistication of the the UAV, um, uh, um, the FMV collection. So, to get an idea of the order of magnitude, um, by 2011, um, so much uh, FMV was being collected. This is 2011 now. Uh, If you, John, wanted to watch that FMV and you sat down to watch it, uh, it would take you nonstop. 24 hours a day, 37 years to, to watch it. It, wow. it was, and that's 2011, which is the beginning of this order of magnitude growth. By 2016, 17, there was so much tactical FMV that um, it was not possible uh, to uh, examine it, even though a huge um, number of um, of individuals were doing what's called PED, 
the PED process, process, evaluate, disseminate uh, that overhead. They, they couldn't, there, there weren't enough. Which brings us, I think, as a, a perfect segue into kind of my next question is, so then what do you do? Because at some point, um, the, you know, you have manpower limits. Um, you know, there's only so many analysts that can sit and watch this. Um, even if you speed up the video, even if you, you know, you work in every trick that you, that you want, some point you have to probably look toward automation. And, and I understand from your article that that's, that's what the task force did. Yeah. Well, you know, we have to, in, um, uh, CENTCOM, of course, which is the, the AO where all of this is being collected, um, uh, knew it had a big problem, and 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 the 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 person who commanded at that time was General Votel. So you know he was a seven one four commander, and um, and and they 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 understood there was a problem, um, and and uh, and so uh, what happened was in in U.S. Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. Um, was was asked to find a solution, and and so they set up a a team uh, to do this in USDI warfighting support. Um, what's the solution to this? And um, made up of some very smart uh, smart guys, and um, they uh, they uh, quickly came to the answer that uh, computer vision and artificial intelligence uh, is the answer to it. And that 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 effort to harness uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning became, um, you know, essentially Project Maven. Um, General Clark, you know, I know you are the commander of a unified combatant command, so forgive me for using a uh, specifically army sort of analogy here, uh, but Army Futures Command, the newest army command, uh, has been doing this quite a lot, partnering with research organizations, uh, academia, and pairing up practitioners with the people doing the research and, and development, uh, which, you know, frankly, for the U.S. military is a pretty, seems like a pretty innovative thing, unless you look at special operations forces, because they do have, I think, a history of doing this a little bit better. And that was certainly the case uh, that, that SOCOM personnel operators were, uh, were involved in this process. I wonder if you can kind of speak to, uh, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, ab- absolutely, John. And this is, this is a really important effort. Number one, uh, we, we've, always, we, we've always said there's never going to be enough uh, UAVs overhead because we can all we can always use more uh, because we're we're really you know, focused on the ability to to find fix and finish uh, you know, counterterrorism targets uh, globally. So, but to your point, the increased need for processing uh, uh, processing examination and, and dissemination of, of, is really important. So. What, we started several years ago teaming you know, with the Project Maven team. And because we had forces that are forward in the combat zones to, to allow them to parse the data, look at our FMV, we had to declassify much of it you know, so that they could actually put it into their machines. And we're, we are still doing this today forward to take the you know immense amount of data uh, that we've collected over the years and actually put it into uh, some of the Project Maven uh, efforts, uh, 
to be to be able to actually do what I think you're getting at, which is reduce the amount of ped you know, that we need, and to allow machines to take away, you know, to take over some of the what I'd say the mundane, uh, you know, human you know, task to be able to look at and and quickly parse through what we need uh, for our operators on the ground. You know, this is this is pretty leading edge. Um, implementation of technology uh, for the military. Has there been any reticence um, really essentially to trust uh, what the algorithm tells you if there is less human involvement in, in, in one particular phase of, of, of say, analysis? I, I, have, I have personally seen none. Uh, I would say that we're, that we still don't have a perfect solution at this point in time. Uh, the only, it's not necessarily reticence, but the only, the, the, the only uh, issue at hand is it takes a while to actually practice and go through, you know, the, all the data required to, to actually produce a system for full motion video that is, that's providing the accuracy we need. Uh, and so we're not, we're not, we're, or I think if you ask our operators, they would rather see something that's faster you know, now and see it, that they can use it and be relevant today. It's just taking a while you know, for, the, for us to run sufficient full motion video and test the system over and over so we actually have a usable solution. So your article does a, does a really good job of tracing, you know, the, the sort of, efforts of special operations forces uh, in Iraq, their efforts to identify and overcome uh, particular challenges. And Dr. Schultz, I wonder if, you know, looking back at that kind of 15-year history that you traced in the article, I wonder if you can kind of identify any lessons that can be derived that help us sort of conceptualize um, the future role of artificial intelligence and machine learning on, on, on the battlefield. I, well, what I would say is that um, the the Project Maven team um, uh, they really understood quickly that um, that there were solutions to the to the PED problem, and and so they 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 teamed up uh, with um, with Special Operations Forces because they were the obvious ones to team up with, and also had this uh, mindset that we've been talking about. Now, what they what they found is that that this is a whole new um, way of acquiring and uh, and um, and fielding technology. You know, when you go from hardware to software, it, it's really different. And and the thing that I I learned early in um, in going down and sitting in the, the the Maven offices, and I did this you know, all fall and into the spring until um, COVID stopped me from traveling. What I found was that they, they understood um, what's called field to learn. And so the, 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 the algorithms and the systems that they were, were fielding um, were, were in their embryonic stage. And, and the way that you improve that um, is by testing them in the field, bringing all that uh, FMV back and taking it through a data uh, pipeline 
for for training algorithms and then then redeploying them. And and while industry has been doing this for quite a while, Silicon Valley, this was really new uh, for the for for the Department of Defense. Um, now they've they uh, as General Clark said, the, the operators always want it faster. Um, but um, what, uh, what 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 the Maven team did was that they they deploy um, reps from the the algorithm developers into um, uh, into the uh, and the platform developer into the field to to work with um, operators on on how to imp- uh, on what they want the algorithms to do. So this is a really interesting iterative process. Now it moved from from analyzing PED to um, empowering operators by giving them new tools uh, as they were planning operations to be able to to see things that were occurring in their AO that they might not have been able to detect without the AI. So the AI becomes an empowerer of operations. And uh, the better it gets, um, it it allows you more battle space uh, management of operations. Now, where this is going to go is um, uh, to um, uh, the challenge of dealing with the peer competitor. And that's going to mean that that the platforms that you're using to collect your intelligence are going to be different, and uh, and and uh, and the amount of intelligence is going to be collected over big areas. So there's going to be a big change coming, but I, I think as it is empowering um, uh, CT operators, it's also uh, it's going to transition uh, to the larger force for that peer competition and and will make us better at deterring uh, our peer enemies and if necessary defeating them general clark do you have any uh, any thoughts to add to that yeah yeah dick has always did a great job i i put it i throw a couple points in here what what made this unique in using project maven uh, specifically, is because we had we had guys forward that were looking at problem sets every single day and having a great data set that they could plug in the system. And while yes, we want it faster, I, we just had Secretary work here a couple months ago. Uh, you know, who set up the algorithmic warfare task force that Dick and you just referred to. He was astounded by how far we have gotten uh, and realize that SOF is a great incubator for the artificial intelligence and machine learning in a real-time environment today, as we showed him some of the test cases of some of the things that we have done within the last couple of months of helping identify enemy forces, helping identify friendly forces, uh, and be able to show that in real time. And, and Dick, just to put a finer point, the planning that some of the artificial intelligence machine learning have allowed us to speed up in real time where our operators at the edge can actually get the data and pull it into their systems uh, is changing. Uh, It's going to be game changing in the future. 
because as we look at our hyper enabled operator who can pull in artificial intelligence, machine learning from, from data that's available locally uh, and that's unclassified up to UAVs, uh, up into former data sets of detainees and be able to pull this in and see it uh, in the front is going to be critical. Uh, so we're, the, the, the importance going forward of being able to operationalize at the tactical edge, the artificial machine learning is exactly where we are trying to go and then turn it uh, as Dick talked to, how do we do that in, in a near peer competition stage? You know, you mentioned hyper enabled operators and this, you know, this really making a difference at the tactical level. I think some listeners might quite naturally uh, assume that if you're fielding algorithms, essentially, and AI, that that means kind of deploying them, in a sense, to headquarters, to say a task force headquarters uh, in theater. Um, but is that the case? Or is it really going to be something that is useful and accessible by an operator on target at the tactical level? At the, at the tactical edge, right? At, you know, it doesn't, you know, because you're going to where I'd say we were 25, 30 years ago, where everything was, you know, went from the division headquarters to the brigade headquarters to the battalion headquarters of the company. And then at some point in time through the whisper game, it would get down to the team that was executing. We're yeah. talking about giving that right to the tactical edge uh, and that they can see it just as soon as others and that they're working within that m mission command aspect we talked about earlier. Wow. And John, can I just add um, something um, also to this? So, you know, we talk a lot about um, today in in uh, in the security world uh, of the U.S. about the pure competitor, but we um, are still going to have to manage um, the extremist problem. Um, you know, it's true that that we 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 did a, a an outstanding job against ISIS. Um, but we have, uh, when you look at ISIS and, uh, and also Al-Qaeda, we have them dispersed over pretty big areas. And um, you're, they're gonna have to, we're going to have to manage that problem. That's going to be a soft problem to manage. And with um, constrained resources, um, what, what General Clark just uh, uh, talked about, is going to be critical because that's going to be the the force multiplier. That's going to going to give um, our teams that are in remote areas that have to uh, to to keep this uh, from regenerating itself. And we know in the past we we thought we had uh, defeated Al Qaeda and we took our eye off of it and we got ISIS. Um, we we have to be able to to manage that that part of uh, our security uh, problem, and uh, and and AI and machine learning, all of what Maven is doing uh, is is going to and getting better at is going to allow us to do that. If you don't mind, I want to I want to kind of uh, jump back a few minutes to something you mentioned. Uh, you said that the better that the AI gets, essentially, the better that it gets, um, the better we'll be able to manage battle space operations. When you say the better it gets, 
how is it going to improve? What were the things that maybe when it was first fielded and and in its first several iterations that it didn't do as well as operators maybe wished it did? Detection, you know, the, the what it would detect, you know, would be not not very accurate. You know, in the, in the first iteration, you know, it was 40 50% accurate on on the 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 um the items that computer vision was um, was built to detect uh, and uh, and and be able to um, uh, to uh, to deal with. So the the key is that through constantly uh, retraining your algorithms, and the way you do that is by exactly what General Clark said: by what happens in the field, the the FMV that's being collected locally, the algorithms are are part of a, an a integrated platform that you have that that blends you know your common intelligence picture your common operating picture has maven appliance uh, it has an fmv feed um, it, it also has other data that it can uh, it, it can uh, uh, use um, that that data all of that is going back those those algorithms are being retrained and and they become sharper and sharper uh, at uh, at detection and 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 what you're detecting becomes you know more more diverse and that's the that's what 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 I mean by what I said general clerk I, you know I wonder if you have uh, any any thoughts on that? And I also wanted to ask you. You know, it's important uh, for us to have an understanding of the limits of the technology that that we're employing. But along with that, almost a sense of humility about knowing, you know, what technology can do for us, what humans have to be doing for us, uh, how best to marry up those 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 sort of capabilities. I wonder if you can kind of speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, first, to to a little bit about what just about Dick just talked about with the object detection and the ability to, to, to be predictive. When you talk about FMV uh, and, you know, using full motion video and our UAVs flying overhead and looking at you know, millions of hours of the uh, full motion video, that that's one part of this uh, in, in terms of what AI is not, was not doing uh, for us effectively. But I think as we go forward and then you you pull in all the other data sets that could be coming in, whether it's signals intelligence, whether it's human intelligence, uh, and then you, in the information space, you know, we're, we're getting all kinds of open source intelligence and then fusing that uh, and then be able to put the artificial intelligence and machine learning to help identify trends. To help identify where enemy, where where the adversary may be going, uh, to to do direct targeting an individual. I think that's where we need to be going with artificial intelligence for the long run, and we still have some work to do there. But that that's where we need to go. In terms of your your second, you know, your your question about humility, I think one. I, I'll answer in two parts. You know, first, I, I think. If you go back to Dick's illustration on the 714 and what made that successful was it, it was it was top down initial kind of guidance 
But truthfully, it was commanders allowing for a bottom-up feedback. Uh, and you know, I, I was there on the ground as a, you know, as a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel uh, and General McChrystal and Admiral McRaven and many other of the heroes of the day. They would spend hours down at the operator tactical level getting that bottom-up feedback and not being predisposed to a specific answer that they thought, but instead hearing what the teams and the task forces and the Intel folks said they needed to have to be better. And having that humility, John, that you just talked about to be able to take in inputs and then actually use those to help make the whole system more effective is exactly what we need. And then the second piece, you know, with artificial intelligence, you know, and you know, the human piece is the ethical part because in everything we, uh, this is not, uh, in some cases, not, it's going to be humans are going to have to oversee any type of artificial intelligence, machine learning and putting themselves uh, in that process and making sure that we understand uh, that nothing will be done uh, that particularly that could be kinetic uh, will not be done without the authorities and permissions of a human you know, that understands the, the rule of law uh, and the code of conduct is really key to this. Well, I think I, we're going to wrap up with, I guess I just asked one kind of, kind of big open-ended question uh, to each of you. And, and that is, you know, this is, this is, this is a big, a big change in, in terms of the way that we operate as a military force. Um, you know, in terms of the extent to which it it is a dramatic, you know, evolution in the character of warfare, how would you sort of characterize that? Is this, you know, is this just like the introduction of the machine gun or the tank or or, or other sort of tools, or is this something fundamentally different that we haven't seen before? Dr. Schultz, maybe I'll start with you. Well, I think if we go back to what General Clark said about the fact that not that we're now taking FMV, we're going to have captured any enemy material, we're, we're going to have open source, and, and that's going to be uh, all integrated together for the, the CT mission. And then you can imagine that we're going to take the same conceptual idea uh, and apply it to um, a, a, a host of different collection uh, means and sources of intelligence um, in a, uh, for, uh, for a future um, peer competitor and for a really an AI and ML enabled uh, command. To me, um, this, is, this is revolutionary. And um, uh, I think um, uh, that in, in we're 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 in the midst of a of a revolution in intelligence affairs, and that's going to carry into um, our our military, and uh, and and we may well be um, in the midst of a of a, a revolution in military affairs. I don't know, but it, it, it has all the the initial um, uh, snippets that that tell me. That we're we're going in that direction, and General Clark, I I agree with what 
Dick just said, the, the revolutionary uh, in nature, but it may actually be evolutionary in development because it's going to take, I still think there's going to be some time that it takes. But I think what we're going to see overall is that we're going to have threats in the future that potentially are faster. Uh, we're going to see more lethal potential. Uh, but I think the other piece we're going to see is that the threats presented are going to be less attributable. Uh, so working in cyber and working in space, uh, as, as examples, we may not always be able to point to a specific adversary. Uh, and I think the, the advent of those, but then teamed with information warfare and where we're, you know, that the truth may not necessarily be the truth, uh, but it may be what is what is perceived by uh, by both friendly and enemy side, but also how that how those perceptions and perspectives are purposely uh, you know, attempt at least uh, to alter uh, people's perceptions and perspectives. And I think that's something you know, that we absolutely have to look at going forward. And how do we how can we detect that? in an artificial intelligence and machine learning environment? What, what, are the, what, what are those tools that have to be at our disposal to be able to do that? So uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about the future, uh, and I'm excited that SOCOM uh, is, is very much a pathfinder uh, inside the Department of Defense uh, and trying to use AI uh, and ML uh, at the tactical edge today. Uh, and we're going to try to use it not just in not just in a fine fix finish environment, but we're going to try to apply it to maintenance. We're going to try to uh, tie it to information you know, warfare. We're going to try to tie it to brain health uh, and how we can better our force. So we have a lot of our, we have we have a lot of opportunities here to leverage you know, technologies and integrate them for our force. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the article that we published uh, for listeners. If you have not read it again, uh, I highly encourage it. It's a great compliment to this conversation. Um, and thank you both for, uh, for joining me on the MWI podcast. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks, Dick. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. And if you're enjoying it, we would really appreciate if you could take just a moment and give the podcast a rating or leave a review. It is a great way to help us reach new listeners with an interest in topics related to modern war. Thanks again. Thanks again.